You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Human Circus. The text we're dealing with today is about travel, but it isn't really a travel narrative. In fact, for the great majority of the book or books, there's very little narrative at all. It follows the journeys of a Venetian merchant family, and there are prices to be found, and products, and quantities too, but it is no merchant's handbook. The characters within are in circumstances which virtually guarantee adventure. But this is no adventure story either, and what little there is seems some of the book's most suspect material. It might be said to be a work of geography, and here we're closer to the truth, but that's not easy to use as such, and is often hindered by the skeleton of a story that does exist. As a work of history, it's frequently misleading, and as a book of wonder, it's rather short on wonders, or at least those of the fantastical kind. The books of Marco Polo are, in summary, a pretty frustrating read, but there is something there, sometimes actually there on the page, and sometimes more in the space formed by a mission, something that has captured people's imaginations for hundreds of years and continues to do so today. With this episode and the next two, I'll try to get at what that is. Hello and welcome, I'm Devin, and this is Human Circus. At this time, I ask of you, like a con to a pope, that you and all your kings and queens please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your platform of choice, and that you impose upon your cousins, vassals, and landbound laborers to do the same. Thank you, all of you who have already supported the podcast in this way, or with donations. And thank you, too, all of you who have supported the podcast just by downloading it. It's extremely nice on my end to see that people are indeed listening. Now... All of that aside, let's begin. Over the next few episodes, I'll be talking about the Marco Polo text, a book that goes by various names, and I'll be looking at both the history of the book and the history contained within it. I'll also continue to follow the story, such as it is, that the book gives us of the Polos and their travels. Today, we'll be looking at their departure from Venice, their journey towards Kublai Khan, and some of the themes of the text, as well as a bit of the history and mythology it contains. Last episode, we started in on the prologue, that of our story and that of the books themselves, following Niccolo and Maffeo from Constantinople, across the waters of the Black Sea, and east to meet with Berka Khan of the Golden Horde, or Kipchak Khanate, and then their way home blocked, rather further east, seeking first to find a bit of a long cut back to the Mediterranean, and then taking up the envoy's invitation that brought them to the palace of the emperor Kublai Khan. 
when we left them, their mission on the Khan's behalf, the delivery of a letter and the request for holy oil and a hundred men, was stalled by events beyond their control, a papal election or lack thereof. The Polos were forced to wait, and as they did, they dropped in on the family back home in Venice. Let's pick things up from there. Marco's Venice had sailed through the rough patch that followed the fall of the Latin Empire of Constantinople, as well as could be expected. The returned Greek emperor had allied himself with Venice's genuine enemies and barred the Venetian fleet from its critical anchorage at the gateway to the Black Sea. But the exile hadn't lasted for long. The emperor had his own motives in not favoring Genoa too much and in playing the two rivals off against each other and he had his own troubles with attempting to restore the rest of the old empire, and he soon let them back in the door. Venice's exclusivity, which it had enjoyed under the Latin Empire, wasn't coming back, but its colony was allowed to remain in place, and most of its trading privileges were restored. If the city was no longer the only player at the table, at least it again had a seat. Venice was growing in prestige and prosperity, From the sacking of Constantinople, it had drawn in the treasures of an empire, and the wealth and goods brought by trade continued to fill its purse, as carpets, cloves, cinnamon, pepper, ginger, silk, slaves, and perfume sailed into its port. And what about Marco himself? Given that the book leaves our main character behind to focus on his father and uncle's time abroad, what can we say of his early years? That he grew up in the shadow of all this imperial splendor that he was raised in a merchant family, that he lived in the parish of San Severo with his other uncle following his mother's death, and that he was very likely brought up on the kind of math which we would term word problems. And we have examples. Maybe you'll feel closer to Marco to think of him sitting down to a kind of lesson that in some ways sounds oddly familiar. Make me this calculation, it goes. Two merchants have their wool on a ship, One of them put thirteen sacks, and the other of them put seventeen sacks on board. And when they arrived in Venice, the captain demanded his freight charges from the merchants, and they said to him, Take one of our sacks from each of us, and sell it and pay our freight costs, and then return the remainder. And the captain took two of these sacks, and sold them, and gave ten coins from the proceeds to him who had thirteen sacks, and the freight had been paid. And he returned three coins to the man who had seventeen sacks and his freight was entirely paid. And the merchant said to the captain, We want to know how much you sold the sacks for, and how you calculated what you took from it for freight charges. Of course, you, or little baby Marco, had to speak for the captain, to give the final answer, and to show your work. Along with this kind of applied math, Marco would have learned about conversions of currencies, weights and measurements, assessing the value of different products, the movement of silver about Europe, and helpful proverbs like, good words and evil deeds deceive wise man and fool alike. All of that, and more, appears in the early 14th century Venetian merchant's handbook, the Zibaldone de Canal. It's a few decades later, and of a different merchant family than the Polos, but it's a taste of the culture Mirko would have been brought up in while his father and uncle were away. Once they were all back together in the city, they waited. They waited for quite a while for a new pope to be declared. They waited until they grew tired of waiting, until they could do so no longer. 
They waited during the longest papal election in history, as the cardinals were locked in, placed on rations of bread and water, and had the roof removed from over their heads, all in order to encourage their timeliness. Two of the cardinals in question actually died during this painful three-year process, as well as a third who, perhaps wisely, had managed to make himself absent for the whole thing. Understandably, the polos gave up on waiting, and they left before a new pope was named. It was three polos this time, of course, for Niccolo and Maffeo were joined by Marco for their trip back to Kublai Khan. In fiction, this is often dramatized with Marco convincing his at first reluctant father to bring him along. But really there's no reason to think this was the case. Certainly there's no suggestions of this in the text. And if the Mongol Khan's court was a far stretch for a first turn at traveling merchant's apprentice, it was about time for the younger Polo to get out and experience the world. The three of them made first for Acre, where they again met with the papal representative, Tiobaldo Visconti, and then went inland to Jerusalem. If they couldn't get a pope to give them a hundred men, then at least, Visconti had indicated, they might bring the Khan some oil. The expedition to the Holy City was no great trek as journeys covered on this podcast go, a mere eighty miles as the crow flies, but it may still have presented dangers. They were in the Mamluks' territory now. There had been some limited cooperation between the Mamluks and the Crusaders when the former had gone north to face Hulagu's Mongols in 1260, but the decades since had made quite a difference in where things stood. Since then, the armies of the Mamluk Sultan Baybars had swept out of Egypt and into the remains of the Crusader states, besieging Acre unsuccessfully in 1263, but taking a number of towns and castles. They had gone as far north as Lesser Armenia, looting its cities as they went. And in 1268, they had taken Antioch and massacred or enslaved its people. Antioch's ruler, Bohemon VI, had not been present at the time but he had received a letter from Baybars, filling him in on what he'd missed. Quote, Death came among the besieged from all sides and by all roads. We killed all that thou hadst appointed to guard the city or defend its approaches. If thou hadst seen thy knights trampled under the feet of the horses, thy provinces given up to pillage, thy riches distributed by measures full, the wives of thy subjects put to public sale, if thou hadst seen the pulpits and crosses overturned, the leaves of the gospel torn and cast the winds, and the sepulchres of the patriarchs profaned. If thou had seen thy enemies, the Muslims, trampling upon the tabernacle and immolating in the sanctuary monk, priest, and deacon. In short, if thou had seen thy palaces given up to the flames, the dead devoured by the fire of this world, the church of St. Paul and that of St. Peter completely and entirely destroyed, certainly thou wouldst have cried out, Would to heaven that I were become dust. And this was all pretty recent, too. Less than five years had passed, and Jerusalem was in Mamluk hands when the polos went. Though the text makes no mention of it at this point, it was likely a tense little shopping trip for the Venetians. Like so much of the Marco Polo text, though, it's the stuff of a single sentence, but you can so easily imagine it spun out into a book or a movie. Once they had the oil, the polos were on their way heading north through Little Armenia. But it wasn't open roads ahead to China. Instead, they received a letter summoning them straight back to Acre. 
Larger dramas had played themselves out and now imposed themselves on the polos. For that long wait we talked about was finally over. There was a new pope. And his name? Well, his name was Gregory X. But right up until it was that, it had been Teobaldo Visconti, the polo's man in Acre. It was quite a stroke of luck for our Venetian friends. The ruler of Lesser Armenia set them up with a galley and sent them back down the coast, and their acquaintance, the brand new pope, set them up with blessings and new credentials. However, he didn't set them up with 100 well-educated Christians. You might have thought that 100 moderately capable men who would do in a pinch might have been scared up for the occasion. But Pope Gregory doesn't seem to have gone that route. Instead, he kept with tradition where adventures to the Mongol Khans were concerned. He sent them with papal letters and a pair of Dominicans, Niccolo de Vicenza and Guillermo de Tripoli. Friars were something that came in twos, not in hundreds. And the polos weren't going to be waiting around for another 98. Back up through Lesser Armenia they went. That's how far they'd gotten last time before being called back by the new pope. This time that's how far they got before alarming intelligence reached their ears and their two friars abandoned ship on the whole project. Clearly, these were not the hardy Franciscans of previous decades, sternly braving starvation, stone-cracking cold, and death by Mongol, to venture into alien lands from which some would literally never return. These two apparently just needed to hear about the Mamluk Sultan Baybars laying waste to the country, to turn over the papal letters to the polos, and their own safety to a nearby body of Knights Templar. And the timing of this is a little odd, coming solidly between two notable periods of Mamluk incursions into Lesser Armenia and Anatolia. It doesn't seem like any major invasion ought to have caused them any trouble. Still, though, it's believable enough that fighting or rumor of it was creeping north through Syria at the time our party was passing through. Or maybe this was just a literary device, intended to show off the polo's unshakable fortitude in the face of threats that would make lesser men scurry to the relative safety of the nearest crusader outpost. Either way, I fear our days of following Franciscans and Dominicans to the courts of the Khans may be behind us. There was to be no great friar-mongol adventure this time. The Venetians continued on, surely not alone, but no longer bringing even two of the requested hundred on towards Kublai Khan. And this is how that great journey reads in one of the editions I'm using. Quote, Niccolo, Maffeo, and Marco, however, undismayed by perils and difficulties, to which they had long been inured, passed the borders of Armenia and prosecuted their journey. After crossing deserts of several days' march and passing many dangerous defiles, they advanced so far in a direction between northeast and north that at length they gained information of the Grand Khan, who then had his residence in a large and magnificent city named Shangdu. Their whole journey to this place occupied no less than three years and a half. Like I said, the book is no travel narrative, no great feed of adventure story writing. Here we have yet another purported three-year period which must indeed, as the text admits, have included hard marches over desert and through dangerous passes, and much more besides, even with that golden tablet of imperial favor and entitlement that Kublai had granted them. But this short paragraph is all the text includes on the matter, 
a great emptiness into which an imagination might pour all kinds of stories. And maybe we can fill in some of those blanks by looking elsewhere in the books of Marco Polo. I should explain here that the narrative part of the books is really very short. It's a prologue, a setup for the main body of the text, a justification or explanation for it. That main body is something more like a cataloging of selected towns, cities, and regions from Lesser Armenia on east, with the odd story interspersed. You'll read that such and such a town is noble and good and populated by people of W and X religions who produce Y and Z crops and products. And sometimes, things then move hurriedly on to the next noble city, with little to differentiate them. In one location, it's only the swollen legs and glands of the populace that stands out. In other places, though, there are other details that start to color in the gaps in the narrative, or to establish other patterns. Of Lesser Armenia, for example, we read that the game was plentiful, both birds and beasts, a feature that always seems to have drawn Marco's attention. We also read that the air was not particularly healthy, that the city on the coast from which they moved inland was heavily frequented by merchants from Venice, Genoa, and elsewhere trading in spice, silk, and other goods, and that the nobility of the area had in the past been renowned for their expertise as soldiers, but were now fallen on drunkenness and cowardice. This last point raises questions for me. Was this a generalization based on a personal encounter or two? Something like the expanded grumblings of a tourist who once had a disappointing breakfast somewhere? Was it something said locally of the region's nobility that the travelers picked up on? Or did Marco simply prefer places to people? We're going to see that cities are often magnificent and noble, but their people, nobles and commoners alike, are often treacherous and bloodthirsty criminals with few redeeming characteristics. And there's an immediate example of this as the Polos moved east from Lesser Armenia. The Turkomans had excellent horses and sold fine mules, but the human inhabitants themselves were, like others we'll meet, rude people and dull of intellect. Further east, the Venetians started to pass through lands that were to them alive with the life and legends of Alexander the Great places where his gates had sealed off the uncivil world, where his army had fought with that of Darius the Achaemenid Emperor, where he'd married Darius's daughter, or where animals descended from Alexander's own beloved horse had still, until only recently, walked the earth, had done so until their owner, the king's uncle, had refused to surrender them up to the king and been killed for it, and his widow had then destroyed the horses. The city of Baghdad is described as the noblest and most extensive city to be found in that part of the world, home to silks wrought with gold, velvets ornamented with the figures of birds and beasts, and studies in Islamic law, magic, physics, astronomy, and geomancy. It is also identified as the place where Hulagu had defeated the last Abbasid Caliph and sealed him away with all his riches to ponder in his last starving, dying days the uselessness of all that gold. Not the way the Caliph's end is usually believed to have come, but certainly a memorable story. The city of Tabriz, on the other hand, is, of course, very large and noble, abundant in precious stones and pearls, delightful gardens, and merchants from Europe and India. Those who were part of such trade were wealthy indeed, but the bulk of the inhabitants were very poor, and the Muslims there were singled out as treacherous and unprincipled. 
you might be starting to notice a pattern here. As the books wind their way east, Muslims are pretty regularly associated with villainy of one kind or another. In one area, they're given to savage and bloodthirsty acts of violence, which they'd happily inflict on travelers and traders alike, were it not for their fear of Mongol retribution. In another, they appear as covetous and sordid merchants, prone to all manner of ill-dealings. Muslims, in the book's depiction, are dishonest even with themselves, condensing wine and then giving it another name so as to sidestep prohibitions and drink it. And they are too easily redeemed by the confession of their faith, and thus feel free to commit even the most serious criminal acts without repercussions. Piling on to all of this, there are stories of Muslim persecution of Christians, and of miraculous interventions by which they are foiled, in Baghdad and Samarkand in particular. As you can see, there's a pretty clear anti-Muslim narrative. Along with all of this, though, there are some counterexamples which start to stand out. Sometimes this might be physical admiration, as in the case of an area of northern Iran, where the Muslims are described as, quote, a handsome race, especially the women, the most beautiful in the world. Other qualities stood out too, though, and not just of appearance. In one area, the Muslims are civilized in their manners and accounted valiant in war. In another, they are considered keen and skilled sportsmen and hunters. Not an inconsequential compliment from one as interested in hunting as Marco seems to have been. Then, on a more personal note, he records learning much from a very wise Turkoman traveling companion, a Muslim. My point here is that the text is hardly immune to the biases of its times. They're here in abundance and, and really pushed forward, actually. But it does very occasionally rise above them, too, or perhaps more accurately, shuffle around them. The other in the Marco text is a pretty interesting topic in itself, and I'll get into it more next episode with its treatment of Mongols and Chinese. But for now, let's turn to the topic I think of as stories of the road. On the Polo's travels, they heard stories of the lands they passed through, and these vary quite a bit. You get the humble shoemaker of Baghdad who once accidentally saw the leg of an attractive slipper buyer and then scooped out his own eye before causing a mountain to move and an Abbasid caliph to secretly convert. You get recent Mongol history given in some detail, like Kublai's war with Kaidu of the House of Chagatai. You get things like the assassins. I've talked a little about the assassins before on this podcast, about their legendary mountain strongholds, and how they fell to the invasion of Kublai's brother Hulagu. And I've long planned to work them more fully in as the focus of an episode. But that won't be this episode. I bring them up again here, though, because the Marco Polo telling, which he testifies to having heard from sundry persons, is one that has been largely discounted, but is also one that has really stuck with us since. It's a synthesis of the assassin legends that were already circulating among Europeans, with perhaps a few additions. But it quickly became the standard version, and it might be the one you recognize. Having spoken of this country, it opens, mention shall now be made of the old man of the mountain. What comes next is an explanation of how the old man of the mountain, Allah al-Din Muhammad III, commanded total obedience from his followers and sent them out into the world to reliably do his bidding in the face of death. Between two lofty mountains, there was a beautiful valley, 
a luxurious garden paradise, into which Ala al-Din brought the most delicious fruits and the most fragrant bushes and flowers, all in abundance. There were palaces, richly decorated in gold, paintings, and silks. There were, arranged to flow into them, streams of the purest water and of honey, milk, and wine. And there were women, skilled in song and dance, in music, and in, quote, dalliance and amorous allurement. It was a garden of delights and fascination, an unearthly paradise to satisfy all the senses and every desire. It was, in short, a place one was meant to want to stay, to cling to, to remain and never to leave, and if you must go, to claw your way back in as quickly as possible. Over this garden valley, Ala al-Din had absolute power. You could only get there through a secret passage from an impregnable mountain fortress, and you only entered when, if, and how he wanted you to. The chosen were young men from the surrounding area, those who showed bravery and a certain promise in the martial disciplines. He secluded these youths at his castle, lecturing them daily on his power to grant entrance into paradise, and dosing them with opium. You'd awaken afterwards to find yourself in a palace apartment within the valley, surrounded by beautiful women, with milk and honey flowing through the room and a head full of drugs, and soon, exquisite wine, too. A few days of this and all its joys, and you'd again be moved in your sleep, whisked away to the unpleasantly normal world outside. Where had you been, you would be questioned, before Allah al-Din and his people? In paradise, you confidently replied, by the favor of the old man of the mountain. Such were the rewards which awaited those who did his bidding, and so his followers had no fear when thrown into danger. Fear was for those who crossed him and his people, whether king, vizier, or caliph, for their fate was a very public death by dagger, at the hands of a man who knew his own fate, already to be assured, in the happiest of ways. The text wraps things up with the Mongols dismantling that legendary fortress, and this did indeed happen, but it should be noted that there are no reports of heavenly garden valleys. Possibly they had just been very well hidden. Then the text wanders on to other things to a waterless desert, and to a town which produces the best melons in the world, cut in long, thin spirals, and dried in the sun for shipment. Such is the peculiarity of the Marco Polo text, mixing these details, which can seem to us somewhat mundane, with highly dramatic bursts of history or legend. And the Polos also wondered on, their experiences on the road very occasionally bubbling to the surface, in the text and little hints and allusions. Maybe Marco was kidnapped at a certain point, losing many of his fellow travelers as they were sold into slavery or put to death. Elsewhere, he might have been present to witness winds of such an extreme temperature that the locals would submerge themselves in water up to the chin to save themselves from the suffocating heat. It was said to be so bad that the baked remains of anyone caught out in the open would fall apart on contact limbs dropping to the ground as people tried to clear their corpses. It was all very colorful and unpleasant. These moments of Marco's personal experience come up very rarely after the prologue, really forming an infinitesimal portion of the text, so much so that their purpose is slightly unclear. Are they intended to entertain, to break up a somewhat monotonous geographical parade? Honestly, there's really not enough of them for that. And, that being the case, why not, I want to ask? 
want to ask while roughly shaking Marco by his shoulders, in fact. The man and some immediate relatives make a 13th century land journey to China in the court of Kublai Khan, and the text has fairly little to say about it. Again, I think that's part of what makes the subject matter so appealing to turn to fiction. It's a great sea of possible and even likely adventures that exist in these openings, just waiting to be colored in. But it's also more than a little aggravating. Verification seems another likely reason to reference personal experience. You can believe these things I'm telling you to be true, because I was there, and I saw them. That's a common enough inclusion, sometimes quite repetitive even, in medieval travel narratives. But that's not the case here. The aspects Marco is attested to have experienced on the journey east are few. You wouldn't get to your other hand in counting them off. And they seem almost inconsequential, the details that are supported in this way. Not at all matters of great importance, or attached to key locations where it's crucial to establish that he really was there. In the end, the personal material in this section feels a little like accidental inclusion, inadvertent slips that made it into the text. So let's put them aside for now. We'll be returning to Marco's role in his own story next episode, and to the creation of the text itself. But for now, let's turn to another section of legend and history. Let's turn to Prester John. So yes, it's the return of that mythical priest-king who I keep threatening to do a series about, so often does he pop up. And here's another example, in the Marco Polo text. What's he doing there? Well, he's serving as a father figure and a mentor to Chinggis before falling out with the great Khan and being overthrown by him. If you're familiar with the Chinggis story, then you'll have heard this one before. This was Ong Khan, the regional ruler whose favor Chinggis had sought out long before he himself rose to any kind of great stature. It's a seemingly odd association of a local ruler long defeated with Christian savior. But it's not unique to this book. The Ong Khan had been associated with Prester John in the past. Friar William makes a mention of the connection and speaks of crossing Prester John's supposed realms, but finding none save the odd Nestorian who recognized what he was talking about. And communications from the Mongols also included reference to themselves as the conquerors of the priest-king and the inheritors of his land and authority. As travelers like the friars we followed went into Mongol territory, there was a great deal of curiosity as to Prester John, and lo and behold, there he was found. But he had changed. This was not the otherworldly figure, the dispenser of miracles who lived among monstrous beings and went to war with an invincible army forming up in unlikely numbers behind jeweled crosses. This was someone more modest, someone who had diminished in size as they had drawn closer to him, someone who had faced and been defeated by Genghis Khan. And it wasn't relegated entirely to the past, either. There's a present-day descendant of Prester John serving as the Mongol Khan's vassal in the Marco Polo text, and his realm produces fine-quality azure stones and camel hair products. It's an interesting transition, which I need to get further into at some point, but one can immediately see the obvious propaganda value in it for the Khans, their power eclipsing this nearly all-powerful Christian savior even as their armies seemed at first to realize his promise of defeating the Muslims in the Holy Land. And this was Marco Polo's little part in it all, as he, his father, and his uncle traveled across countryside that had been Prester John's, making their way towards Kublai. 
the Polos may well have been concerned that when they finally arrived at the Khan's court, they would find themselves unwelcome, perhaps even forgotten. Something of the sort may have been going through their minds when they made to leave without waiting for a new pope. It would, after all, have been years since Niccolo and Maffeo had left Kublai's company, eight years by the book's accounting of time, in some editions at least. Who could know what other whims, interests, or ideas might attract the attention of a Mongol emperor in such a long interim, and whether or not he would still have cared to see them when they arrived? As it turned out, they needn't have worried. The text informs us that they were given the royal welcome, met forty days' journey from their destination, and with orders given to ease their way and give what comfort could be offered as they approached. That was how they came to Shangdu and found Kublai Khan waiting for them. If you've listened to episode 7 of my Mongol series, you've come across Shangdu before, though not by that name. Back then, when Kublai had first established it, back when his brother Monka had still ruled as great Khan, it had been Kaiping, the shiny new capital designed for him by his advisor Liu Bingchong. In 1264, it had been renamed Shangdu, or Upper Capital. But it was no longer Kublai's primary city. As of 1267, that had been another place at present-day Beijing. But when the Polos visited the Khan, they did so in Shangdu, now his summer capital. The city of Shangdu was three nested cities within one square outer wall of two and a half kilometers of pounded earth on all sides. On a map, the outer city took up an L-shape across the top and down the left side. Well, in the lower right quadrant, more than a quarter really, was the imperial city, and then boxed within that, the palace city. For a closer look, we'll need Marco's help. The text describes a palace of marble and other attractive stones, elegant in design and skillful in execution, its chambers and halls, all in gilt and exquisitely painted with the figures of people, beasts, birds, flowers and trees paintings that you could only regard with delight and astonishment. But it's the Khan's special park and hunting enclosure that really receives the attention here. There were rich and beautiful meadows, watered by many rivers and brooks, and dotted with fountains, and stocked with animals of all kinds that were not ferocious in nature, and which roamed among trees and plants brought to that place for the Khan's enjoyment. More than 200 hunting hawks and falcons were kept on the grounds, and at least one hunting leopard, which was apparently carried on horseback, presumably on a horse with no sense of smell or self-preservation, until it was to be loosed at the Khan's command. At a particularly lovely spot, by a grove of trees, was the Khan's pavilion, its gilt pillars wrapped in dragons supporting a roof of varnished bamboo. It was all, in short, a place to which the resources of a great power were exerted to facilitate the leisure of one man's summer months. That was the Shangdu the Polos arrived at, and the text relates that all the Khan's highest officers were there when they were ushered into his presence, and that the travelers stepped forward and prostrated themselves on the floor before him. Kublai commanded them to rise, and they did so. Then he asked after their mission on his behalf, what of their travels and what of the Pope, and what of the oil in those one hundred men? How had it all gone? Now we know that there were to be no one hundred forthcoming, but that doesn't seem to have bothered the Khan overly. He listened in silence to their story, and then greeted with enthusiasm first the letters and presents of Pope Gregory, and then the holy oil. 
The latter was received with reverence, we read, and instructions given for it to be preserved with religious care, though whether that meant being assigned to some of the city's Nestorians, placed within Kublai's own chambers, or something more like the warehouse from Indiana Jones, it does not say. The Pope's letters, on the other hand, were read out on the spot, much to the happiness of the Khan, who commended the fidelity, the zeal, and the diligence of his ambassadors. Around this point, Kublai noticed Marco Polo, and he asked who he was. To this, Niccolo answered, This is your servant, and my son. Upon which the Khan replied, He is welcome, and it pleases me much. It was to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Marco and his family were going to be staying on in Shangdu, and, so the text tells us, elsewhere throughout their host's empire, particularly in China. What would be going on during this time? What would Marco be doing for all those years? The text offers some possibilities. Ambassadorship, governorship, building war machines. But how believable is all of this? And what of this text itself? What of the circumstances of its creation, its spread, and its popular reception? All that and more next time. Circus will return.